Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your mercy. And Lord, we worship you that that you don't change, that your word is true, that you can be relied upon, and that you will do what you promise. Father, we ask that you would cause your word now to speak to our hearts, and we pray that you would fill us with, with joy that you are pleased to make us part of what you're doing in the world. And Lord, we pray that you would order our affections and reorient our perspectives and make us people who recognize that this is your world and that we are here for you. We ask that you would cause your name to be made great here, Lord, and we also pray for your people who are singing your praises and hearing your word around the world, some of them before us, some of them after us in time, Lord, we pray that you would be building up the church. We pray that your word would be going forth in power. And we pray that you would be redeeming people. We ask that you'd be doing that even now in these moments. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalms 122 and 123. And we'll be looking at these two psalms together. Just this past week, this past Monday, my son Jake and I got back from uh, India. And it, we, were, we were so privileged to get to go to church there. And we saw a vibrant church of about 200 people, about the same size as this congregation. Uh, different in some ways. For instance, on this side of the room, all the men sat. And on that side of the room, all the women sat, and, and there was no intermingling unless you were uh, under the age of about four, and in that case, the boys could go over there and sit with their mothers. Um, unlike some other places that I've been in the world, uh, I didn't recognize Western hymn, hymn tunes. Uh, they sang uh, songs that were, that were to melodies that, that they had written there. I, didn't, I couldn't sing along to the English hymns, uh, but in terms of the reading of the word, and the confession of the faith, and the lifting of praises to God, and the, the fervency with which people worshipped, I felt right at home. It was, it was wonderful to feel a kinship with people on the other side of the world that uh, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one Lord, there's, there's one faith that we, that we participate in, and it was just a blessing um, to participate with them in worship. And I say that in part because of the first verse of Psalm 122. I would invite you to look at that first verse where it says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, what, what David, this is a, a song of a sense of David, what David is talking about is going to the temple in Jerusalem to worship the Lord there. Uh, that's not the way that we think about this building. Uh, God doesn't dwell in this building. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said to them, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God dwells in you? 
Uh, so sometimes people will refer to this room as a sanctuary. I try to avoid that. Uh, I try to refer to this room as a worship hall because sanctuary has the idea of this is the dwelling place of God. This is not the dwelling place of God. This is not the Holy of Holies. There's no Ark of the Covenant up here. There's, there's no altar where we offer sacrifices. Uh, God dwells in his people. His people are his dwelling place. So some things have changed between us and David, but the sentiment is the same, isn't it? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. David wants to gather with the people of God for the worship of God. And that's the same way we feel, isn't it? It's a joy to gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus for the worship of God. Whether we're here in the United States or somewhere else in the world. Now let me back up just a little bit from this psalm. And, uh, and, and, and draw your attention to some features of the context. Um, if you've been with us, you know that Psalm 119 is this long celebration of the Bible, a long celebration of the law. And then if you, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at Psalms 120 and 121, you see that those are both headed by a, the words, a song of ascents. And that heading is going gonna, is gonna to start all of these psalms through Psalm 134. In Psalm 120, in verse 5, the psalmist says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech. And Meshech is this place outside the land of Israel associated with evil things. So this is a psalmist who is, who is in exile. He's away from the Lord. But then in Psalm 121, he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And then he finds help from the Lord. And the idea seems to be he's going to get help from the Lord to return to the land of Israel. Because this word that's translated uh, a sense here in these titles, it's the same word that Denny read at the end of 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, when it says, uh, anyone who wants to return, may his God be with him and let him go up. Uh, these are songs for the goings up, you could render it. It's the same idea. They're, they're going to go up from exile to return to the land. And these are songs of ascents as the, as the people come streaming home after the future salvation that God will have accomplished, uh, these are the songs that they were envisioned to sing. So in 120, the psalmist is in exile. 121, he's getting help from the Lord. And then in 122, it's as though he has arrived in Jerusalem. And so this is a psalm for someone who has been brought home, someone who has, who has come home from exile, and, and this is his response as he finally gets to re-enter the presence of God. Psalm 122 comes in two verse units, except for verse 5. And, and the, the opening two match the end two, and then the, the second two match the second to last two, and then verse 5 is there in the middle. So let's look at Psalm 122, verses 1 and 2 again here. David writes, I was glad when they said to me, you notice he's not alone. There's a group of people around him. And this group of people, they're saying to David, let us go to the house of the Lord. One of the great things about walking with God, with the people of God, is that we are not mavericks. We're not out there by ourselves alone in the world. One of the great things about being part of a, a healthy church is that we're not alone in times of need. And, and you know, 
I, I hope nobody looks around and thinks to themselves, nobody else here is in need. Everybody here is in need. Every one of us is in need of the rest of us. We are in need of one another. And, and David is saying, I was glad when they said to me, the people are saying to David, let us go to the house of the Lord, and that causes him to feel joy. And then it's as though they've arrived at Jerusalem in verse 2. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now before we move forward in Psalm 122, I want to outline some reasons that I love to come to Kenwood Baptist Church. I, I, I feel this every time I'm away. Every time I'm away, uh, Sunday comes, and, or in, even in the lead up to Sunday, I'll get these emails from Matt. These are the so- songs that I'm thinking about for this Sunday. And, and if I'm not going to be there, invariably, what I'm feeling is, dang, <laughs> I wish I could be there to worship with, with, with our people. And, and, um, and, and so, so I hate it when I'm not able to be here. And here are some of the reasons I love to come to Kenwood. Number one, because here we worship God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no better God that could be worshipped. And here, we get to come together, and as a, a group of people, we get to worship the Lord together. Number two, the, the message. And I'm not just talking about what I preach, or what Denny preaches, or somebody else preaches, what Mike preaches, or Randall, or whoever's up here. I'm talking about the truth of the Scriptures. There is no truer word. You are not going to find a better God or a truer word anywhere else than in a church like this that is orthodox, that believes what Christians have always believed about God, and that, and that is submitted to the truth of the Scriptures. And then, so God, the message, the true word, the people. We, I, I love you guys. It is wonderful to see the fervent devotion to the Lord. And it is wonderful to walk with God together, to enjoy one another's personalities, to be able to relax and talk about college football or to talk about those sorry patriots that just keep winning or whatever it is that you want to talk about. It's great to be together. It's not just sports that I like to talk about. It may come across that way sometimes. But it's, it's, it's great to fellowship together. And then fourth, it's great to enter into the work of the greatest cause on earth together. What we're doing here is bigger than any one of us. What we're after here matters more than any of our individual little goals or responsibilities or challenges in life. The work of God on earth is being accomplished through what's happening here uh, last week in, in Mike's sermon, which I wasn't here to hear, but um, I listened to it this week, uh, Mike told a story about um, a church that had blessed some people in need. Uh, somebody's pulled up at their home and the trunks opened and all the uh, provisions came out for these people. And, and that kind of thing happens here. That kind of thing happens here. Recently, when my wife and I and our family, we're not always able to be here for the pancake breakfast because often we have uh, stuff going on on Saturday mornings with the kids. Uh, but recently we were able to be here. And, and the great thing about this 
is that this is not just dependent on any one of us. This is not just up to any one of us. We're all able, able to enter into the labor that others have already been engaged in. Like Jesus uh, said to his disciples when uh, those people are coming out from that Samaritan town, and he says, look, the fields are white for harvest. Others have labored, and you can now enter into the labor. Well, so we're, we're here, and uh, all these people have donated stuff and, and done things to make this this uh, ministry possible. Bob is, is keeping this ministry going uh, with, with such valiant efforts. And, and there's a lady that has a whole box of Christmas goodies that's being given to her, and she needs it carried out to her, to her car. So I pick up the box, and I walk her out to her car, and she sends me a thank you note, as though I had something to do with it. All I did was carry the box out to, to the car. But it's a blessing to get to be able to provide for people, to, to get to be able to share the love of Christ with people. So I would urge you, if, if you haven't uh, engaged in that ministry, if you haven't entered into that work, you ought to try to come some Saturday. There are always here, there are always people here that need to hear the gospel. People here that are, that are dealing with things, they need, to be, they need to feel the love of Christ ministered to them. So I would, I would encourage you to come enter into the work. Also, I would encourage you, uh, is Paul guesting here this morning? Where are you, Paul? Paul, I'm about to do a chiasm in my own little thing here, okay? So I started with, uh, I love coming here because of God, because of the message, because of the people, and because of the work. And then I'm urging you now to enter into the work, to love the people, so I'm going backwards through the list, to steward the message, to steward the gospel, and to worship the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a magnificent thing to be able to come here and be part of this. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, what we want to say is, this can be yours too. You can be part of this. You can, you can turn away from your sin, you can put your trust in Christ, and you can know the God who is like none other. The message that is the truest thing you will ever hear can take root in your heart, and you can enter into this greatest cause on earth. Look at verse 3. David writes, Jerusalem. So it's like he's, he's come to the gates of the city, and, and he's, he's just overwhelmed by the glory of it. Uh, Jake and I, last week, we got to go to the Taj Mahal, and it is a magnificent piece of architecture. And it's a tomb. That's what it was built for. A really rich guy, a really powerful guy, his favorite wife died, and so he built her a fabulous monument where she's buried, and then he's buried there. That's all it's for, to mark her grave. That's not what Jerusalem's for. Jerusalem, in the ancient world, when David was king, Jerusalem was built for the worship of God. The best things in life, they point beyond themselves to things of greater significance than themselves. Jerusalem. David says, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of Yahweh, as was decreed for Israel. 
You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the feasts of Israel. Three times a year, every male in Israel was supposed to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the great things that God had done for them in, the, in their history. They were to celebrate the Passover, uh, commemorating the way that God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They were to celebrate the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, commemorating the way that God had provided for them as they made their way through the wilderness. And then they were to celebrate um, Pentecost or weeks, uh, which, which perhaps celebrates the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, perhaps also the giving of the land. And, and all of these things are not just about the, what God has done in the past. They are all anticipating the way that, that God is going to do this kind of thing in the future. So all of this going up, all of this, this gladness at getting to come to Jerusalem, it's not just an end in itself. It's looking forward to a better day when God is going to make the world new and wipe away every tear and raise the dead and dwell with his people. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. They're going up to Jerusalem to worship God, to enter into the celebration and the, the glad uh, gratitude praise directed to the living God. Uh, the, the great thing about this is that everybody has the same need for it. Everybody, all of God's people, we have a common need. This is what unifies us. Um, uh, it, it, you know, it's interesting. We, we, we have some racial stuff going on in our country. We have um, conversations about race. We have people thinking about race. Um, and and from, my, from my conversations with, with people in India... What they say to me is, it's worse over here. It's worse over here because it's complicated by all... A big, a big complicating factor is that caste system, which is just a wretched, wicked uh, institution that makes it where people of, of a higher caste should not help people of a lower caste. And then there are all these ways of evaluating who's where in the system. We, we don't have anything, praise God, we don't have a caste system that makes it where if you're a, an upper caste person, you shouldn't try to help somebody of a lower caste. What creates unity there and here? I mean, unity there is complicated by the different, uh, you got Hindu people, you got uh, Muslim people, you got people of different skin tones, you got all kinds of issues going on there. And yet in that church, you got people from all these backgrounds, all these skin tones, all these castes, Worshiping together. And do you know what creates unity there? It's the same thing that creates unity here. We recognize we all have the same need. We are all sinners. And then we recognize that our need is all satisfied the same way. It's a common need that has a common satisfaction in knowing the living God. And then our common need that has a common satisfaction results in common praise. We all praise God the same way. There may be different songs. There may be different music styles. That's fine. We're all lifting up fervent, fervent hearts of gratitude and praise to the Lord. And it results in an uncommon unity. This unity is what David is, is enjoying and entering in, into in verses 1 through 4 
And then we come to this standalone verse in verse 5, where he says, There, in Jerusalem, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. This poetic line is, is linking up with the broader story of the Bible. This poetic line is communicating because it is meant to evoke the, the, the wider narrative of Scripture. In that wider narrative, the house of David is the house through whom the seed of the woman is going to come. In that wider narrative, the house of David and the thrones of judgment that the Davidic king is going to occupy, that is how justice and righteousness are going to be administered in the world. So this is assuming that the rest of Scripture in which the king from David's line is the seed of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent, punishing evil and defeating it, establishing righteousness, ensuring justice, accomplishing salvation. And this means that the hopes of the afflicted are going to be realized. And those who are oppressed are going to be relieved because the oppressors are going to be crushed and the guilty are going to be punished and the righteous will be rewarded. All of that rests on the throne of justice where the king from David's line will uphold steadfast love and truth. So David comes to Jerusalem the city of the Davidic king, and he praises God in Psalm 122 because he believes that God's king is going to uphold God's justice in God's place for the good of God's people. That's, that's what this is about. That's why you have this line that says, there, thrones of judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. And we know from where we sit because of all that's been revealed to us, we know that Jesus is going to take up his seat on the throne of justice. So this means that our hope for justice, the, the yearning and the longing that we all feel, our hope for justice is going to be realized. It's going to be fulfilled. And you know what's comforting about this? We don't want anyone else on that throne. We don't want anyone else on the throne of judgment. We don't want anybody but Jesus deciding issues of mercy and pardon, judgment and punishment, because he alone is capable of taking up that seat. He alone will administer justice in righteousness. What's going on here in the Psalms is the same thing going on in the book of Isaiah. In, in Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, Isaiah has this this, this uh, place where, where the people, the nations, are streaming to Zion. It's like they're, 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 they're engaging in the pilgrimage on which they will sing the Psalms of Ascent. And then in Isaiah 11, there is this celebration of the king who's going to reign in righteousness. And he's going to strike the earth with the sword that comes from his mouth. And he's going to be clothed with justice. And he's going to judge the world with wisdom and truth. It's the same thing going on right here in Psalm 122. So, so God's past deliverances that are commemorated in those feasts there in verse 4, the occasion for going up, they point forward to a time when God will de definitively deliver his people and establish the righteous king who's going to sit on that throne in verse 5. 
and judge righteously so that God's people will dwell in God's place under God's law enforced by God's king, enjoying a way of life that can be encapsulated by this word shalom, a word that's translated peace here in verse 6. So in verse 6, when David says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, what he's saying is, pray that the shalom that God intends for his people under the reign of King Jesus, pray that that will be realized. Do you want a, you want a New Testament translation of this? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. It's the same thing. That's what David is talking about when he says, pray for the peace or the shalom of Jerusalem. And when that shalom is realized, look at verse 6, may they be secure who love you. When, when God's peace is enjoyed by God's people, there won't be fear from attack from the outside or from corruption on the inside. That will all have been dealt with. Everybody in the city of God is going to be secure. Verse 7, peace or shalom be within your walls and security within your towers. This is the glorious realization of God's purpose that David is praying for. Notice how this, this poem, it, it's, it's saying particular things, but it's meant, those, those particular things are meant to key into this broader story that engages the whole Bible. The, the story of the Bible is, is teaching people truth about, about justice, about the future, about what's going to happen, and all those things are being, are being evoked here in this, in this poem and producing a lifestyle, a lifestyle that says what I long for is not some place where I can uh, indulge my own private fantasies. No, what I long for, what I yearn for, is what God has said he is going to bring about. The, the king from David's line, Jesus, on the throne, reigning in righteousness. God's people secure, enjoying shalom. And God receiving the praise and thanks that he deserves from his people. The life that we will have when King Jesus reigns is the life for which we should pray. That is God's peace. That's what he wants for us. That's what he's promised to us. And when that time comes, we will prosper without fear of enemy attack from without or unjust corruption and oppression from within. In verses 8 and 9, uh, David models the two great commandments, love for God Love for neighbor. Look at verse 8. He starts with love for neighbor. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. David wants peace in Jerusalem for the people that he loves, for his brothers and for his companions. David wants God's good promises to be realized for the good of the people that he cares about. This is what will motivate us to pray. When, when we love other people, we will want God's goodness for them. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace within you. And then verse 9, love for God. 
For the sake of the house of Yahweh our God, I will seek your good, he says. So what David is doing here in verses 8 and 9 is concluding with statements that communicate the best motivation for the most important things in life. The best motivation, love for God and neighbor, for the most important things, the worship of God and the flourishing of God's people. This is what David is communicating in this prayer. A life, there there is no better way to live than pursuing a life of love for God and love for neighbor. Jesus is going to take up his seat on that throne in verse 5. And we want no one else on it. And he is going to decide every, every matter of justice and punishment, mercy and pardon. And when he reigns, the hope of justice will be realized. God's people will be unified in praise as we enjoy shalom in the city of God. And everyone is going to worship God for the sake of God's glory and for the good of our companions. And that leads us right into Psalm 123. So we've got a progression through these psalms. From exile, from the pain of exile in 120, look at verse 5, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach. That's a pain that results from separation from God. To the help that the Lord provides in Psalm 121, My help comes from the Lord, verse 2, who made heaven and earth. To the return to Jerusalem in 122, verses 1 and 2, and then to the lifting up of his eyes to the Lord in 123. Look at 123, 1. To you I lift up my eyes. This is really similar to 121, or 121.1, sorry. I lift up my eyes to the hills. 123.1, to you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. If you step back for this from this for just a moment, and you think to yourself, where have I heard this phrase, enthroned in the heavens, in the Psalms before? What might come to mind is Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2, 1 through 3, the nations are raging, they're plotting a vain thing against the Lord and His anointed, His Messiah, His King. And then Psalm 2, verse 4, the one enthroned in the heavens laughs, and then He will terrify them in His fury. All of that is evoked, I think, by this, the, the reuse of this phrase, enthroned in the heavens. And, and what it says is, uh, in, in a sense, David is still where we are, still in the context of the raging nations who are trying to throw off the yoke of the living God and his king. And, and because of this, he's lifting up his eyes to the Lord. And he, he's going to talk more about those raging nations in verses 3 and 4 here in just a second. But here he says in verse 1, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And what he's doing here is he's lifting up his eyes to the Lord alone. David is modeling exclusive dependence upon God. So unlike other kings in Israel's history, there's no appeal here to Pharaoh or to Babylon or to Assyria. There's no looking to man 
for military provision or the lifting of a siege or some other good that you can achieve by means of political alliance. This is exclusive dependence upon God. To you, I lift up my eyes. This is a good, a good moment for us to take stock of ourselves and ask ourselves, what am I really relying upon? Am I saying, give us this day our daily bread? A am I looking to the Lord for, uh, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil? Or am I thinking that some other power is going to help me? Am I relying on myself? We, just, we all just need to constantly take stock of ourselves and make sure that our trust is in the Lord. That we're not becoming proud and thinking, I got this. I can do this on my own. And that we're not thinking, other people or some other power can help me in a way that God can't help me. Those, those kinds of thoughts are simply false. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. This idea that God is enthroned in the heavens speaks to God's absolute and utter transcendence. And, and as I was reflecting on this, I, I, I think it's important for us to, to, to think about God and to think about the way that God is not part of creation. We, we are not, not panentheists who think that God is somehow part of the world or, or the world itself. We're not pantheists. Nor... Nor are we idolaters who think that God is somehow to be placed on the same level as his creation. God is enthroned in the heavens. He is distinct from everything that he has made. He is separate. He is utterly unique. There is no one else like him. And, and to get at this, I want to read a little bit from the Westminster Confession of Faith. You could get statements like this. Um, in a lot of confessions, but, but listen to what uh, this statement says about God. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, Almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He's just quoting Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. What will make us rely on the Lord alone? What will make us feel what the psalmist says when he says, to you I lift up my eyes, you who are enthroned in the heavens? What will prompt us to respond that way is when we know this God. There is none other like him. That He has no equal. So David says, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And then in verse 2, the first two sections of verse 2, he's going to use two comparisons for this. First one, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. 
And then the end of the verse, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Um, when, when, I was, when we were in India, we only stayed one night in a hotel. And um, uh, there, was a, there, were, there were people eager to help us get our bags up to our room. And, um, and they were eagerly watching my hand as we got to the room because they're, they're looking for a tip. This is the kind of thing they're looking for, they're looking for uh, what can be provided. And what David is saying is, we're, we're looking to the Lord the way that people look for the, to the master or the, or the lady, the mistress. We look to the Lord that way. What's being communicated here is both absolute exclusive dependence on God and the dependence and need of God's people. That's what these comparisons are communicating. And it's looking forward again till he has mercy upon us. You you could say till he is gracious to us. And that grace is the day when the king from David's line, he reigns. That's the grace that's being looked for. That's the mercy that's being looked forward to. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, notice how the first statement, to you I lift up my eyes, matches the last statement in verse 2, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. And then between that, there are these two uh, comparisons, as the eyes of servants, as the eyes of a maidservant. Verses 3 and 4 are similar, where, where the first and last statements correspond to one another, and then the inner statements correspond to one another. So verse 3, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. This is You could also render this, be gracious to us. He's just crying out for God to do what God has promised to do. And then he tells us why. Why he's crying out for mercy. And this gets back to that uh, that, that raging of the nations. He says at the end of verse 3, For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease. You notice the more than enough statements in both of those lines, uniting those two statements. And what he's saying is, uh, people have been mocking us. People have been uh, uh, mocking you. Is he really going to come? Do you really expect him to keep those promises? Do you really think obeying those commandments is the best way to live? All this mockery and all of this, this uh, perhaps verbal, maybe, maybe more, more than verbal kind of persecution that happens. We've had more than enough of contempt. And then at, at the end of verse 4, of the contempt of the proud. And that line at the end of verse 4, I think, is matching the the plea at the beginning of verse 3, have mercy upon us, and it invites reflection on the contempt of the proud as compared with the mercy of the Lord. The God of the Bible has every right to be proud, doesn't he? And yet he's compassionate to the lowly. And gives them grace and shows them mercy. The proud, the wicked, they have no basis for their pride. And yet they mock the Lord's humble and needy people with contempt. These contrasts could not be more sharply drawn. These are polar opposites. And they they, they assume a pervasive biblical truth that's stated explicitly in James 4.6. God opposes the arrogant, but to the humble, he gives grace. I want to give you 
five uh, applications coming out of Psalm 123. Application number one, cultivate watchful attention that is focused toward the Lord. Look at verse one, to you I lift up my eyes. Set your eyes on him. Cultivate watchful attention directed to the Lord. Number two, be confident in God. You can be confident in God. He is not going to let you down. There's, there's, there's just certainty that breathes through verses 1 and 2. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Till he has mercy on us. He's going to have mercy on us. We can be confident in it. So hang in there. Persevere. Be confident in the Lord. Number three. Cultivate this expectation. There's hope here. Expectation and hope is being communicated. And number four, know, know with certainty that the Lord will avenge. This takes us back to verse 5 of, of 122. Thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. That throne is about God's authority, and God's authority is going to be applied to everyone. The Lord will avenge. It is his to repay. Leave room for his wrath. Know that he's coming. And then fifth, I've already mentioned this, James 4, 6. God opposes the arrogant or the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So in these Psalms, uh, we see the pain of exile. We see that pain resolved in a return to the presence of God. And really, the only resolution to that pain, the only thing that, that brings an end to that pain is the presence of God himself, which is what the psalmist realizes in Psalm 123, verse 1. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens to you, I lift up my eyes. Home will be realized where God is present, which is why we love to come here, isn't it? When we gather together, it's not just us alone, it's all of us united in the worship of God and the Lord is here with us. The best thing about the presence of God is the joy of reliance upon Him. He is enough for us and He alone. Let's pray. Father, would you make us people who know you people who can't claim to have all of the truth of who you are mastered, but people who have begun to respond as we should with repentance, with faith, with gratitude, with praise. And Lord, we pray that you would use us, that we would be a testimony to the world of your love. And we pray that you would draw many others to know you because of your obvious goodness to us. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, cause the truths of these two psalms to take root in our hearts and to be what we sing as we stream to Zion, as we make this pilgrimage to the city that has foundations, the one of whom you are the architect and builder. We commit ourselves to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.